Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department. Let's see more. I'm Gary Cook, and you're listening to Trailblazers. Welcome back. I'm Gary Cook for the Senior Times, and today we are talking to Peter O'Reilly. Now, Peter is also, in another life, a rugby journalist and a senior writer with the Sunday Times. Peter, you had to find a, another career, although you were young enough, obviously, to do so, uh, and you did. Uh, and there are many people who may not even be that interested in cricket, but they'll they'll be very they'll be very very interested in what you have to uh, say about rugby. And you're, you've been a rugby journalist for many many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say that you felt that you had something extra to bring to it, on top of your journalistic writing ability, just because you played professional sport, uh, and you understood the demands. On, on to, what are the demands in these rugby lads? They seem to be incredibly intense, even, by the way, for people who aren't professional, people who play in clubs, people whose kids play. They used to have, they have, to have to have a huge fridge full of food. <laughs> yeah, and it's, um, it's a physically very demanding sport. Um, it's changed uh, a lot from the time that... I mean, I started writing about it in the mid-'90s, um, around the time that the game went professional, and everybody, including myself, did, you know, really didn't know what professional rugby looked like. We knew what professional cricket looked like and football and all that. And um, it was my good fortune to kind of hop on the bus at that stage because I got to see it develop to the point where now, uh, as you're, as you as you well know, Ireland are you know ranked at the top of the game. Um, it's incredible to think that they've come to that that we've come to this state given how clueless we were back in the mid-90s, you know? That's the question. How did Irish rugby, I, I know the, the game went professional in around 95, how did they manage to, I know initially it wasn't that successful the, the before I professional professionalism, but by 2000, 2001, and like it was working pretty well. How, how did that happen? The transition happened. Well, initially... The RFU weren't ready for for professionalism, whereas the English game was ready because they had a a league system, a premiership system, which was was ready because it had people coming already coming through the turnstiles, and Sky was was kind of coming on board as well. So there was kind of a blueprint there. A lot of our most of our best players went to to play in the premiership. So eventually, the RFU figured out they were going to have to professionalise the game properly here. So they had to. You know, the, first of all, they had to organise competition, which started off as the Celtic League, is now called the URC, started off as the Heineken Cup, is now the Heineken Champions Cup. Uh, where Ireland was fortunate is that we had four ready-made identities. Uh, we had four provinces with uh, with their own history. Um, and that uh, and was four teams was just about the right number for the the number of professional players or rugby players in that we had in the country uh wales weren't quite so fortunate and they're still picking up the pieces if you like um so the players were were bought back from 
from England eventually and uh, the slow journey into professionalism started to take place and um, I suppose Ireland was fortunate that it had a generation of players coming through around that mm. time which had had a natural um, ability but also had a competitive background from the All-Ireland League um, so those Munster, Munster really were the team that, mm. that drove professionalism initially they, they kick-started that kind of new phase of Irish completely, rugby really, completely yeah completely Gary and, and it was it was a privilege to be able to to follow Munster in Europe because um, they took us down all over the south of France and uh, very happy memories of the Heineken Cup games down there some of the st- like from a journalistic point of view, some of the stories, the the, the human human stories that came out of it, um, and this this idea of a of a quest of an odyssey, where Munster kept falling just short, where their band of travelling supporters kept getting much bigger, um, it, it was fantastic to be part of that, and they dragged Leinster along with them. I suppose Leinster just couldn't sit idly by and 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 <laughs> admire or uh, or feel jealous. But of course, what was interesting, as you know, so many of the Leinster sort of fans latched on to Munster. Of course, that didn't happen the other way around. <laughs> no, it didn't happen the other way around. But it, I think that whole Leinster thing that you're talking about, you know, people from, from Leinster becoming Munster fans, uh, I suppose probably counting themselves as being separate from the, the D4 type Leinster fan, if you like. That was really a function of the fact that Munster brought in lots of casual sports fans, general sports fans, people who wouldn't have been, you know, they might have been from GAA backgrounds initially. And Munster were, they were sort of blue collar as well. So they didn't have that elitist thing that rugby had for so long. Because of some of the characters involved and some of the games and the, the near misses and eventually getting over the line, it was just such a, you know, anybody with any interest in sport had to be drawn in by it. And not only that, uh, as we say, Leinster were, were dragged along. And then the Irish team, I suppose, benefited from that as well. And um, it just kind of, it just went from there. And it's, it's, it hasn't been all upward curve. Uh, there's been little dips at World Cups that, you know, you're, we're all well aware of. But, you know, if you, if you add it all up, it's, it's, a, it's a massive success story, Irish rugby, yeah. You were lucky enough to be in at the cold face of... Um of uh, O'Driscoll and the the um, the hat-trick of tries in Paris in, mm-hmm. in two thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, Ollie Campbell, who I know you know, and I've I've interviewed myself, he actually said uh, in February of two thousand that he felt Ireland, and this was after a disaster, a World Cup, as you remember, yeah. in ninety nine. Yeah. He felt Ireland could be on the cusp of something really big. So uh, what was that initial burst of, of the, particularly the O'Driscoll uh, hat-trick? That must have been very exciting. It was. Um, we hadn't had a superstar. We'd had Keith Wood was the closest we'd, be, we'd had to, to, uh, to having a superstar, if you like. Um, somebody who'd been on a Lions tour and been successful. But Brian, uh, Brian was different, different level altogether. Um, did you know about him? I mean, did anyone know? Yeah, I mean, there's, there are a few players that, over the sort of 30 years or so that I've been kind of involved in reporting about rugby that you hear about before you see. And he's one of those. Key and Healy was another. Um, but I, was, I remember talking to it was Dennis Hickey, who was a young star himself, saying to me, the guy you need to be writing about is Brian O'Driscoll. And at that stage, he was only training with Leinster. He hadn't played for Leinster yet. Um, as most 
rugby fans will know he played for Ireland before he played for Leinster. I, I remember being at a, it was an A interprovincial uh, in down in Gary Owen on a, a Saturday or a Sunday morning uh, with about maybe 150 people watching the game and O'Driscoll was playing for Leinster's second string at that stage and he scored a try from nothing and I remember turning to uh, a journalist, Brendan Fanning, standing beside me and saying, we'll toss to see who gets to interview him because we knew we'd just seen something special. As it was turned out, I won the toss, so I interviewed him the following week. But very quickly, the word went around that this here was a guy who was going to play for Ireland. And Warren Gatland, who was coach of Ireland at the time, had the, had the good sense to bring him on a tour to Australia that summer. Picked him in the first test opposite... Tim Horan, a legend of the game, and it all went from there. And I would say, you know, he more than anybody, you know, drove the sudden fascination with rugby. Um, he helped Leinster's rivalry with with Munster. Um, but to have to have a superstar suddenly on your hands, I mean, the the RFU didn't know how to deal with that. I remember there was so there was so much interest, so many interview requests. Um, Brian's dad, Frank, had, uh, had you know, was suddenly dealing with uh, all sorts of um, commercial realities, um, contracts, interests from abroad, all that sort of thing. So um, it was fascinating to witness that and to try and keep track of it, if you like, um, because it was all so new. And um, it was just another, I suppose, jigsaw piece on the, on the, uh, in the Irish rugby story, if you like. You know, I remember it, and I remember he was kind of the first almost uh, rock star rugby player that we had. I mean, I know Mike Gibson was, you know, one of the uh, the other sort of great centre of history of Irish rugby. Uh, where does O'Driscoll rank? Do you think in in the world as as in the, in the history of the game? To me, he's one of the the best players ever. But but I'm not a journalist. I don't know all the players. I think the I suppose the longer that we get away from his era the more fondly he is remembered and, and will be remembered. As a warrior, as a leader, as a guy who was able to turn a game, uh, yeah, I think he's he's got to be our best ever best ever rugby player. There are people now who are suggesting that that, um, that Johnny Sexton might have eclipsed him. Uh, and if you I suppose if you if you tot up uh, everything, if you if you measure things if you like by achievements and by medals and things like that um, that may make some sense, but uh, in athletic terms, um, as an all-around rugby player, I think O'Driscoll will be remembered as our as our best. Yeah. Well, he had that warrior quality to him, on, on, on top of you know his incredible gifts and you know running ability and handling ability and all the rest of it, and he was a great leader. So he became an inspirational leader, uh, and now when you see him on television you realize that he's got a very good understanding of the game he's got a not just an instinctive understanding uh he's also got quite an analytical brain um so he brought all that to bear uh and he had an inspirational quality about him there aren't too many players who have that much in one not at all no he's a generational player as they say yeah absolutely and um and i think that uh, he is he's regarded around the world now uh, in that way you know he's seen he's seen as being a giant of the game definitely yeah sponsored by expressway 
With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie? Doro, make friends with innovation. Do you find it's difficult uh, or tricky dealing with, with, with players now in the professional era with all that, all the kind of people around them and just access to them? Is that tricky? And how do you keep that balance with people that you, you've got to kind of get something out of, but on the other hand, you don't want to kind of <laughs> upset them too much? Yeah, I, uh, access to, to players is, um, is not like it used to be, certainly. And that's simply because there's more demand on their time. Uh, there are more media outlets looking for their time. And so I, I understand that um, it can't be like it was in the old day where you just got hold of their, their telephone number and gave them a call and arranged to meet them for a coffee. Uh, you have to go through a you know uh, communications officer, or you have to have group interviews. Sometimes you don't you don't get one on ones. It's just it's just the way things have gone. Um, and also, in terms of building relationships with players, it's kind of harder given that you know when I started off, I was the same age as some of the players. You know, I, I might have even played against one or two of them, uh, whereas now I'm the same age as their dads, you know. So um, it's uh, trying to trying to build a rapport. And I suppose it does get a little bit more difficult because they're, they're not used to having relationships with, with journalists because they're protected, I suppose, from the media um, because it's in, I suppose, if they are... If they if they spent as much time talking to the media as the media would like, it would affect their performance. So it's for that reason that they're minded, if you like. I remember doing an apres match sketch uh, for the England Ireland game, Grand Slam game in two thousand and three, and we were uh, thought we were allowed in to to the to London Road the day before the match, and uh, the tension in the air. I remember there was uh, there was. The press officer was it somebody called Redmond? I can't remember. Yeah, John Redmond. Yeah, and uh, just it, and then it turned out that 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 it wasn't that we couldn't do it; it's that it, we didn't follow the protocol to do it. We just barrel on in there uh, and uh, doing our sketches and everything. But I remember the tension, like this guy's the whole world. It felt like it was about to explode, you know. And this this was the day before that that Grand Slam. Or two days before the Grand Slam, the one that England won. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but I, I really noticed how tense the whole thing was. Yeah. Well, there was a, there was a lot on the line, and there was probably also a, a strong sense of how good that England team was. I mean, if if you remember, they won by 30, 30 or forty points in the end that day. Um, that's something that uh, is now managed a lot better because two thousand and three, as it was, we're still in the very early days of professionalism, so. Um, managing that tension and that stress, um, it's it takes a bit of doing, you know. And I think that's one one of the things that Andy Farrell has got absolutely right. Um, he um, he would have learned from from his predecessor Joe Schmidt, who got Gary Keegan involved, who's you know performance coach, um, very good on the whole psychology of performance and. Um, I think Ireland's mental strength at the moment is is one of their big pluses. I think it's 
to uh, to have been down in New Zealand last summer and to see them come from one nil down to win a two to win a series two one in New Zealand. Were you surprised by that? I was. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I remember doing a Q and A before departure uh, for New Zealand and saying that I I didn't think that was you know that there might be a there might be a test win you know there might have been a one win in Ireland for, on that tour and that was probably the best they could hope for but that just shows the I suppose the generation I come from we have we had lower expectations and these guys don't think that way at all uh, and I must admit when when we when Ireland went one nil down I thought this could get ugly but they were thinking the opposite yeah I love the the, the song the Irish fans used to sing before going to New Zealand games, There May Be Trouble. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> now, you mentioned that England team from 2003 that won the Grand Slam um, and then went on to win uh, the World Cup uh, months later in November 2003. So, can Ireland win a World Cup? Do you think that's that's realistic or do you think that's just too I do now. Yeah, I do now. I just think that it's gone to another level uh, since since the Joe Schmidt era. Joe, Joe took them to a place where they, where Ireland were a sort of a highly functioning machine-like team, probably a bit too dependent on their coach. And now that thing which coaches talk about empowering their players, which sounds like a little bit kind of waffly, uh, has been achieved. Um, and also what's been achieved is... Uh, this belief that they can continue to get better. How has that been achieved? Uh, well, I'm trying to find out. Actually, it's, it, you know they are they um, because they're in the process of of achieving. They don't want to speak in the past tense about how this has been done. You know, they they want to. Um, they're they're reluctant to talk themselves up too much. Uh, now, by the same token, the, the 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 positivity that you get from the Ireland team. Uh, at the moment is that there's not much false modesty you know they um, if you ask them a straight question about do they think they could win a World Cup you know Sexton will say that's why we're here you know that's why we're I mean I suppose a a slightly negative way or kind of um, bet hedging way to look at it is that well if we manage to get to a semi-final who knows what can happen then you know all bets are off but you know they are they, they, I don't think there's any team that Ireland fear at this stage. They understand that to once you get to the, the business end of a World Cup, you need a little bit of luck as well as you need people staying fit. You need some of the odd refereeing decision going, there, going your way. But um, it's now not as dependent on so many things going right. Uh, I think there's a, there's a genuine self-belief there and it's based on, on performances and based on personnel and it's based on the gradual grow, growth and depth of the squad. So, you know, it's, it's based on, on, on proper belief. Yeah, because one thing that I, I sort of get the sense of now is that teams, the psychology of a team's believe uh, this Ireland team could easily do us. You know, you know. I've noticed from, from just playing sports myself, and you must have noticed it, when you have the sense of that power and when you have the sense that another team is is kind of, or another player or whatever, is feeling on the back foot. That's the feeling I have about Ireland now. I mean, regardless of the actual how the match is going in any particular moment in a, in a game, there's this sense that it's, it's almost like, you know, the great football teams like Man United or Liverpool teams of the past, you know, 
this lot can come back and this lot can win and the the opposition kind of know it. Is that the sense you have of the Ireland team now? Yeah, it, it's kind of a... Calling it an irresistible force is probably going a bit too far, but we have grown up with this this psychology that... I'm talking about people of our generation, Gary, that uh, <laughs> Ireland have just played a really good game or they've won maybe two games in a row, played really well. There must be something bad around the corner. You know, this can't carry on because we don't, you know, we need to be uh, in a situation where people don't expect us to win or to be the underdog or something like that. But that's, that's not the case now. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That, that psychology doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I, you know, you have to... Uh, we don't give Joe Schmidt enough credit, I think. He's not fashionable at the moment in Irish rugby because Andy Farrell is so fashionable. What, what Schmidt gave us was that... Um, that consistency of performance and that that idea that dropping beneath a certain level wasn't acceptable. Um, but I think Farrell has, has added layers on that um, and whereby it's, you know, it's a, it's a self-belief that's based on the fact that, you know, we can achieve that performance again because we have the talent, we have the game plan, you know, the whole, the whole thing works. There's no dead wood. Even when in recent weeks, Key players have been have been haven't been there. Guys who've come in have have performed, and uh, you just get get the sense that this is all part of a of a campaign towards a successful World Cup. Now, because of the draw, it's you know the the quarter final. If, if Ireland get to a quarter final, um, that's one thing. I mean, the way that Scotland are playing at the moment, taking a quarter final for granted would be a silly thing, and I don't think Farrell will do that. And then. If he, if Ireland do get to a quarter final, as you know, it's it's either France or New Zealand are most likely to be there. So, you know, it's quite, it's perfectly possible that Ireland mightn't get to a to a semi final once again, but they just seem to be in a situation where they have a, a, a good chance, or is given that Farrell is giving them a, as good a chance as possible of breaking new ground. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the interview. It's been fascinating, Peter. Really good. Um, just on the rugby thing. What are the greatest moments that you've... Because you've covered a lot of matches. What are the greatest moments? You, you mentioned the New Zealand <laughs> tour last year. Um, Leinster, Munster, Ireland. Well, I suppose there are a couple of things that that's, that, that spring to mind. Um, I was in Cardiff in 2009. So we, you know, Ireland hadn't won a Grand Slam in 61 years. And uh, when you're in the press box, it's... Uh, it's supposed to be a sort of a an oasis of calm objectivity and all that. And I remember my colleague, uh, Stephen Jones from the Sunday Times, having to tell me to sit down when O'Driscoll, sorry, when O'Gara's drop goal went between the posts because I, I had just become a fan. I, you know, I'd forgotten that my job was to be objective and all that sort of thing. So he, he told me to sit down. Uh, that was a kind of a humorous moment. Uh, and also another press box memory from just from New Zealand in Dunedin in the second test, uh, turning to another colleague, Jerry Thornley, uh, after the game. And now, these days, even with the time distance difference to New Zealand, there's still pressure to get stuff written and get it up online as soon as possible. Um, so once the final whistle had gone, I took the time to turn and shake hands because you have to kind of mark these moments. Because, you know, because... Um, Jerry and I and various other journalists have been going down to New Zealand for years and being kind of patted on the back for brave efforts and that sort of thing by the local journalists and 
it was nice now to to have finally won a game over there to have squared the series um and to think that we had you know Ireland had a chance of winning a, of winning a series so those those are the i suppose the the two that that spring to mind yeah uh, and a question that I may apply more to some of the older generation of journalists: Is it good crack? Do you enjoy going off on on a on a, on a libation? Um, yeah, I mean, going uh, touring was it was a bigger novelty when I started off, and it would have been in my thirties, like I mentioned, going all around the south of France, following Munster, especially was great. Um, we get to go to some great parts of the world, usually in their winter times, but not, I'm not complaining, you know, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and uh, generally the the press corps get on pretty well with each other, and uh, yeah, it's it's good fun, and we get to we get to enjoy each other's company. Um, it's like everything, Gary, as you get older, you mind yourself a little bit more. Uh, it's, uh, some it's, people do. <laughs> some people do. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm privileged to, uh, to do this job. I, uh, I'm fortunate that it just happens to be at a time when, uh, the growth of the game in this country has been, has been huge and continues to grow. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, I'm I'm lucky to have the job I do. Well, in a way, your your cricket career, in in a, in, a, in a strange kind of a way, helps set you up for this uh, particular uh, career and journey that you've had uh, with Ropey. Do you have any regrets about the cricket? Um, I have had over the years. Um, occasionally, I'll have things will come back to me, and I'll say, "Why didn't I do that or do this in that situation?" I suffered from a very, very, very mild form of grief afterwards. I didn't realize it at the time. Um, it was much later when my own kids started playing sport that I, I realized that I hadn't processed the whole thing properly. Um, but it's like everything, you know, you <laughs> you get to a certain stage in life and you you know you realize things that if you'd realized them when you were younger, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, um, I also, however, remember a conversation with it a guy from from Belvedere from that I played with when I was you know very young a guy I played with maybe on the seconds or the thirds in the club and he said to me do you ever think about if you had made it he was actually he wasn't really interested in my answer he was just he wanted to tell me he said you've had a much better life you know doing what you've done than if you'd ended up being a poorly paid professional cricketer ending up living somewhere in the middle of England uh you know he said you're fortunate it might not have worked out as you wanted but you've uh, you've had a, probably a much better life you have had a much better life a more enjoyable life in sport than, than you would have had if you'd made it as, as a county cricketer. Well, on that uh, optimistic and positive note, uh, congratulations, Peter, and everything. I know you're a great cricketer and you're a great writer, so thank you very much for talking to us. It has been a huge pleasure. My pleasure, Gary. Thanks. And we'll phone poke and newowet, and we'll knappy no foom nis orjoet, nis eskalehusaj, Faker na phone in Takata Gwyn on show Egg Daro on phone Klishte is Dani gidi gohan la hai glena August Taskena Tarod Egan gogaktena Tanismo Olis Egg Daro dot com
And that brings us to the end of part one with Peter O'Reilly. But we will be back in part two talking to Peter about his life as a rugby journalist.